0: Hey, I'm Michael Durinda.
1: And I'm Jake Bennett, about to learn the Lumberjack song.
0: And welcome to episode 147 of the North Meet Web podcast.
1: Is this 147? We had a discussion about this last time. It was like 146 and a half last time or something. I gotta look it up now. Yeah, definitely 147. No I podcast nine minutes 147. Yep, it's one forty seven. And also, I will have you know that uh, Jason Beggs and somebody else reached out after the last podcast and said, how do we get the lost episode? So I gave it to them. They're the only ones who have ever heard it. You it. And um, yep, it wasn't anything special. I hardly remember what I talked about other than Airdrop being a pain in the butt <laughs> and having a really big problem in production a one particular day. And what I figured out actually on the podcast when I was talking through it myself and then revisiting it like when i was getting ready to send it over to them i said the problem was that we had an issue using airdrop and pulling down from s3 and that was the issue that was actually not the issue the actual issue is that it was not restarting php fpm
0: right yes
1: um on deploy yep and so envoyer is supposed to do that and sometimes it does on this particular site sometimes it would and other times some it wouldn't and so it was just like all sorts of fun trying to figure out why exactly it wasn't giving me the most recent version and that's what it was so anyway yeah that's what that's what I figured out and so I had to uh, I reached out to some of the some of the Laravel guys and was like hey by the way this isn't restarting for some reason Not in the why and they're like yep me either so I was like okay well I'll just Put a little web hook or not a web hook, but a um, deployment hook in there to restart it myself and Bob's your uncle, as they say, as they say in a couple of places around the world. Bob's your uncle. And um, there you have it. I think, in fact, Daniel Colborne, I think he said Bob's your uncle. I think he, in his talk, I think he didn't say it that way. He said Bob's your uncle. Yeah, he's, guess, he's certainly picked know. up he's a the little bit on. of
0: the, a bit of the lingo while he was here.
1: Hmm. Hmm. Indeed, he did, and now he's speaking at Laracani U as well. So that was pretty mm-hmm. cool. Yep. 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 Very interesting. Very interesting. I wonder if he's going to do verbs part two there, or what is what is uh, you know, I wonder. Adverbs. I wonder what, Ooh, there we go. Expanding modifier for verbs. Expanding, is adverbs.
0: Expanding your vocabulary. Yep. He's got all of the extra
1: things now he can add on. So he's got verbs, and then eventually he can do adverbs, and then he can do adjectives. And then nouns and I don't know. No, he doesn't like stuff. nouns. Maybe Skip conjunctions nouns. Conjunctions, if he wants to join things together. I know not nouns, but he's got a whole, you know, he's got all of grammar to mm-hmm. play with now. All the words that are going along, with, like, uh, you know, preposition Little or, things. Uh, uh, you know, prep, you know, direct object, uh, whatever.
0: You got all sorts of stuff in there. All I remember is nouns and all the rest of it. Oh, uh, that was Too yeah, long ago. I now I just speak. I speak english or some variation of it and then
1: follow we'll mm-hmm. the day mm-hmm. yep yep man we're having this challenge right now that i'm having with my um 13 year old where we're learning math and you know this is sort of the thing it's like with english it's like dude i don't i don't care what the parts of speech are like just tell me the answer please mm-hmm. like what's the answer right that's kind of what he wants me to do but with math it's different because with math it's like listen if you will pause for two seconds and let me explain this process to you, you'll know how to do the next 10 problems. But if I just if you just try and get the answer on this one, you're gonna have the same problem with problem number two and three and four all the way through ten. You're gonna just gonna be kind of guessing along. I was like, it's the it's a pattern recognition here. If you can learn how to do it, you'll hear it for this one. You'll learn how to do it forever. Teach a man to fish, sort of thing, right? He doesn't want to hear it. He just wants the answer. So <laughs> we're working through it. Uh and my wife was like, you know, and sometimes she's like, I understand he's frustrated a little bit because she's like, you really like math. And so sometimes you're a little long winded when it comes to explaining math. So you just kind of got to get to the point faster because he's not interested in hearing the why. He just wants Hang to know how Hang it works. You long winded.
0: That doesn't sound right.
1: I know. I know. No, can't be. Can't be. Of course, you've said what? Three words, I think so far at this podcast. I think, so. I, think yeah. I said hello. No, can't be. <laughs> Indeed, indeed. Well, anyway, that's what's going on in my world. What's going on with you?
0: Uh, well, I first of all, you've got a lumberjack shirt on, so let's circle back to that. And and indeed, let's talk about the lumberjack I, song, shall I'm, we? I obviously made the comment that uh, Americans would not typically know Monty Python. Uh, so Monty Python ah, put out uh, this lumberjack song. Yes, yeah, so I know. Who, I know What, it is, I know what but... it is? 1969. This song came out December 14th. Uh, so almost uh, what's that? Sixty four years ago, if my mouth is right, that feels okay. feels about right. It goes, "I'm a lumberjack and I'm okay. I sleep all night, I work all day." And then the Mounties choir replies, "He's a lumberjack and he's okay. He sleeps all night and works all day." And this uh, this progresses uh, until the you know the leader of the song goes, "I cut down trees, I skip and jump. I like to press wide fl- wild flowers." I put on women's clothing and hang around in bars. Oh my gosh. <laughs> okay. I cut down trees, I wear high heels, suspenders, and a bra. I wish I were a girly just like my dear papa. Oh
1: my god! 1969,
0: ladies and gentlemen. And this is, when, this is when 1969.
1: I mean, this is quite, this is very this is very progressive back then, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously he's making a joke, but yes. uh that <laughs> is that is a uh they were brave to do that back Certainly then. Certainly were. Funny. Certainly were.
0: So, yes, that's, All right, that's, well, that. that's, that's <coughs> that out the way. That's, that's uh, the lumberjack song. I, I'm otherwise, well, I've got a uh, day and a half-ish of work left for the year. We've got our Christmas party on Friday, and then I'm uh, finished. And Monday this week, I jumped on a plane for a day trip uh, to go and look at some venues for Laracon. I saw that, yeah. Next year, I saw four. Of the four, I saw four incredible venues. Um, two of them, unfortunately, as nice as they were, they're just not near anything. Like, they're really nice venues, but one of them is kind of, like, just out in the burbs, and it's the closest thing to it is, like, a shopping like block of shops. There's no hotels. There's no public transport. There's nothing. So that's off the list, unfortunately. The other one is just not near anything at all. Like, there's no way to get to it. Um, and so if you live in this city... Sure, it's it's probably okay to kind of drive there, park your car, see your show, go home. But for you know, for the Laracon crowd to be flying in and then getting there, it's just it's just a non-starter, unfortunately. So uh got it down to two. Uh one of them is a really nice venue, but it doesn't really fit the Laracon vibe. Uh it's just a bit corporatey. If that makes sense, like you would know the the okay. kind of vibe that yep, that, no, that is sense. versus you know the kind of vibe that it isn't. So got it down to one. Uh, I'm going to check out some more venues tomorrow, and then by the end of this week. So w- how
1: how far are you having to go to get to these places? We're talking like like
0: how long are these flights? Monday was a two-hour flight. Okay. Um, tomorrow will be shorter. Might be hour. I think hour and ten. About? so it's not it's like not too bad
1: well, once you get this part out of the way yeah once you get this part out of the way sort of establishing where you're going to be i mean you'll it'll feel like you have a lot more time to plan mm. because you'll have everything sort of established and then you can start lining up your vendors for like you know av stuff yeah. and you know well the venues we're looking and, uh, at uh
0: because of the type of venue they are they've got you know, all of the AV stuff is on site. Um, a lot of the catering facilities are on site, so you've got to bring in the caterers themselves. But they've nice. got you know bar and facilities and things like that, which is which is good. Um, I think. Yeah. I, I mean, I posted on Twitter that, like a
1: uh, sort of social mingling area. Yeah. That you were yeah you were looking for yeah, so last time as well. I
0: posted on Twitter yeah. that like the two main bits of feedback that that I had received from people was that the seats were not comfortable. To sit in for two days, which I mean, mm, you know, it's it's a, it's a thing, right? You go and see, you sit in these venues, and normally you go and see a, a two-hour show. But when you're sitting in them for two hours, it's a very different story. So I sat in all of the seats in these four venues on on Monday, and they're all quite comfortable. Um, one of them, the the technician at the the venue said, you know, he's he's seen dads fall asleep in in those seats, you know, at their daughter's dance recitals yeah. and things <laughs> like that. So, um. Yeah yeah so we we made so sure can't be that uncomfortable yeah we we made sure that um you know the seating was comfortable that is that is a high focus for me the other thing is like lots of room to mingle so where we were in sydney this year we we were fortunate and we were unfortunate you know in that we didn't have to cater the event because there was so many options when you went out the front doors of the of the theater but the downside to that is that people go in their own little groups and they go and with those groups to lunch or in their breaks, they hang out in their groups, they come back, and you know they're still in their groups. so there's there's not a lot of the the networking or the mingling and stuff. So one of the bits of feedback that we got was that you know people wanted the opportunity to do that, and that that means for us two things. obviously having a venue with a big enough area to do that in um because the Sydney one they just didn't have the room to hold you know three hundred people, and the other one is then, um, sure. Obviously, catering the event, so we'll look at options to cater. Um, what, what did you do at Laracon US? Because I know that, like, there's there's a lunch thing. But did you guys have like morning tea or breakfast, like tea, coffee kind of thing?
1: As far as catering, yeah. So we had, I think there was sort of um, they had some baristas come in uh for the mornings when there would be there there would be long lines for coffee mm-hmm. and stuff. But I think other than that, typically people just got coffee from their hotels or got it on right. their way in. But yeah there was sort of like baristas there in the morning, which was really nice. that was pretty mm-hmm. cool and then they would have'm trying to remember if they had like snacks out and stuff or if they just had lunch I think they just had lunch and then yeah, and then they would have they would have uh food there afterwards I think I'm trying to remember man now that you put me on the spot, <laughs> I think they had you know they had drinks and stuff afterwards, and they had the after party the first night um and then the second night there was boy, I don't know now it's all a blur. I'm I'm a little bit uh <laughs> my head's a little bit in the clouds honestly. I I'm not feeling super great and it's uh it's late and I'm right. quite tired. Right. So I'm having a hard time remembering to be honest with you as far as like what the actual food options mm-hmm. were. Um but I do remember they had food there at the yeah. venue, yeah, and they had the coffee yeah. there as well, which was really yeah, nice.
0: Yeah, so we'll we'll look at some options around catering just so that people can kind of be together. For as much of the two days, like sure. we will enable, we're not going to force anyone to hang out, but like we're going to make that much more possible. I think that'll be a, a key, key focus for us, on top of obviously having great speakers and, and a nice venue and, and having lots of fun. So uh, the other thing for, for me looking at these venues was like finding venues that would enable us to do 10 different things. So that we have the option to do ten different things, and if we only end up doing like three of them, or seven of them, or four of them, or whatever, like we have the option to do all of these things, and that then means that we can like really tailor a a really nice conference without having to go, you know, to, to too many different places. I think we're still going to do after dark offsite um, on the first night. I think that'll be a nice. You know, that's yep. that's a nice thing to do, um, and I made sure that the venue that that we that we were considering for that um that one of the things on my list is obviously to make sure that like everyone that can come to the conference can also go to after dark because we kind of flubbed on that this year because you know we oversold um, that capacity pretty quickly which is like a nice problem to have but one that we will certainly be prepared for sure. in future so sure yeah um I got the four on Monday down to one I'm going to go look at another three tomorrow and then Friday it'll be you know once I've decided I'll go back to those um the three that I find you know that I narrow it down to and see who comes back with you know the best the best best offerings I guess for us in terms of um, quotes and whatever else and then we'll lock that away before Christmas and um, yeah we'll we'll announce our dates in January just so we don't step on too many larch EU toes in the process and and don't get swallowed up in sort of that you know that marketing we there's, I mean, there's obviously a, a bit of unavoidable overlap. I think in terms of like just the way that sure, yeah. the events are uh, February, June, July, and sort of October, November through you know through the year. That's just the way that they are. So there is a bit of yeah. overlap in terms uh, yeah. of like when I feel we're doing like there's stuff.
1: there is so many laricons now. You mm-hmm. know, it's like I think and India is in March, maybe, U.S., Australia, and India. Yes, yeah, so there's like four like four official laricons. Mm-hmm. Um each year and so yeah it's it's maybe it's, the other it's, way around laricon india yeah. is
0: in february must be that Laracon eu is in march then or is it the end of february Laracon eu oh wait a minute oh oh no no, no 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 yep okay so Laracon eu is the beginning of february Laracon india is the end of february and then Laracon us will be oh wow be in okay sort of july
1: which, that does sort of stink. I mean, because they kind of have to... I mean, it's not that you have to pick one or the other. I mean, I think India could probably fill out their their oh, yeah. size I have no um, problem. thing with just their yeah. developers. I don't think people have to travel no, in they, to fill that they up, you know I mean? out. They sold out
0: our venue in like 30 minutes or something like that when their tickets went on sale. So I think yeah, they're, they're fine.
1: Yeah, yeah, I agree. Um, so that's, I was going to say, otherwise, it's going to be a little bit... That would be hard for... You know, I, I don't I think they're serving different audiences. Yeah, so sure. you're fine. You know, like beginning of February, end of February shouldn't shouldn't matter too much. Mm-hmm. So that's good. Um so I'm guessing Laracon Online is is not a thing then anymore. I mean, like, I don't know, I haven't heard much about yeah, it. I haven't heard that. anything
0: about it. Um at this stage. So mm-hmm. be yeah, whatever happens, happens. Um
1: it would be nice. So for me, like it was nice to have that once in the spring because it was really nice to get like area developers together around to watch that mm. it'd be cool like if eu is streaming or something right yeah. um or even india if it was streaming that way we could sort of join in on the community thing but it's gonna be time zone stuff it'll be weird so i don't know i don't know it's i'm not sure exactly how that would work yeah the time zone is always a bummer, like, like we've big had we've had um yeah for sure i mean you know that absolutely but uh yeah, that's going to be weird because like we've had a Laracon online uh, meetup every year for like the last, I don't know, six, five years, mm. five years, six years, something like that. It's been a lot. And so that'd be a bummer to miss out on that yeah. this year. I don't know. We'll see. I mean, we'll I certainly think there's, there's a lot of activity. I mean, it,
0: there's certainly a place for it. Like, you know, it's great that the in-person yeah. events are back for sure. But yeah, there's absolutely. also like a huge addressable market of Laravel developers that, like, yeah. they can't get to Europe or India or the US or Australia, yeah. like, either for, you know, visa restrictions or just, like, the cost of, of travel and things like that. So, the American Online... Yeah, there's the whole, like,
1: Central and South America market, mm-hmm. you know, that doesn't have really... I mean, you know, I mean, they could fly to wherever if they can, mm-hmm. uh, but that's not always necessarily right. accessible, so.
0: so... Yeah, it'd be, it'd be sad, yeah, sad to lose it, but at the same time, you know, it's a matter of... Of pulling that all together. So it was September this year. Did we have was there a Laracon online this year? There must have been in September. If it feels like so I mean, long ago, but also not that long ago. I mean, was it there was one in September? Was it this September or was it last September? No, it was twenty twenty two was the last one. I, think, yeah. I was gonna say it wasn't yeah. Yeah. We'll we'll see what happens, I suppose. Yeah,
1: the Laracon online September 14th was yeah, was twenty twenty two. I think they had one in the spring and one of the fall that year. Uh, because they had, you know, because of I think it was COVID, they were just kind of doing two. They were doing a fall or a spring conference mm-hmm. and like a fall conference sort of thing online. So that was kind yeah. of fun uh, to get there everybody is, together. I mean, I'll just have to find another reason to get everybody together. Yeah,
0: there, I mean, there is certainly, um, certainly reason or certainly scope. As I said, is a huge, you know, if you think Laracon US does like six hundred, Laracon India does like a thousand. There's you know sixteen hundred um That's crazy. Australia is another three, four hundred. You know, there's two thousand, and then Europe's another six or seven hundred. Like, there's there's three thousand developers, but how many developers are out there doing Laravel?
1: Yeah. Now the good news is that we are those those videos do typically get released, you know, relatively shortly afterwards. So it's like they are still accessible to those people who aren't able to attend. But um, yeah. Mm. Um, you know what else is? Well, no, never mind. Not even worth bringing up. But yeah, that is interesting. I I think that, uh, I, I think for me, I still like the local meetup aspect of it. Like Laracon online, if it was just the fact that it was like more online videos, I think I'd be okay either way, one way or the Mm -hmm. other, you know, but for me, it's actually the funny, the funny part of it is is it's like the reason why I want Laracon online is so I can get together with other people again, like have another, like, you know, opportunity to get all the developers together. So yeah, whatever. We'll see. We'll see. Mm -hmm. Um, so we're 20 minutes in. Uh, what adventures have you been working on at work recently? Like what, what is a big problem you've run into recently that you've had to sort of noodle
0: your way around? Horrible, horrible thing. So the thing that we're in the middle of, I don't know, I don't oh, know no. that I've spoken about this necessarily on, on our podcast, but we are in the process of uh, blowing up our multi-database multi-tenancy.
1: Ah, I've seen you talking about it on Twitter. Mm. I think just you know nothing, nothing explicit, but just sort of hints. Yeah, um, nothing. Yeah. Nothing so good. tell me about that. That's interesting. Yeah, you said something like multi tenant <laughs> multi-tenant, multi-database setup is a lie or something like that. I can't remember exactly. What multi-database it was. multi-tenancy
0: is a mistake, and that ruffled feathers, of course. It's a mistake. Which, of course, it was. Of course, it was an inflammatory thing. Um, I knew that it would be inflammatory when I tweeted it. You but would I never do that. I think my two most popular tweets ever are like that one, and then one from several years ago that just said never ever 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 ever, like as many times as I could fit ever um store currency as floats or something like that like those and you know um. <laughs> I think that's a good
1: advice, so good advice I think that's a really good piece of advice yeah, yeah.
0: um we, anybody
1: who ever has had to deal with a system where they've stored currency as float has had all sorts of headaches to deal with it is just no certainly fun. had
0: regrets um but yeah so the the application in my day job, like when I came into it, it was already multi database and it was already multi tenant and you know the expectation was that we would keep adding tenants it would keep adding stuff. And then when when our like merger went through last year and we got access to thousands of additional customers for our platform, what ended up happening is that not that each of those went into their own tenant. They all went in as like groups of users under like the umbrella of the of the parent company. Right. So instead of having thousands of okay, tenants, sure. we ended up with one tenant with thousands of groups under it. Um which groups think okay groups okay. think of groups as synonymous with teams in the Laravel context. Um so okay. what we ended up having really was like multi-tenancy inside of multi-tenancy. And all of okay. our like authorization logic is based around like the groups and like your user has access to either their own stuff or stuff because of the groups that they're in. And everything is then like in double quotes, isolated to that tenant. But really, everything is like isolated at the group level. And so, the more that, okay. the more that we worked on over the last you know eighteen months, as we've like scaled up the operation, as we brought on more users and and certainly more developers, we've just found that it causes us more problems than it than it addresses. And so, we decided six months ago that what we would do is we would collapse all of those tenants into a single database. On a new tenant, in quotes, and just call it like app dot whatever, and that way we would just migrate everything slowly in there. And so then the the process or the thought process was into a single into database. a single database, and it, and then because everything is already yeah. basically operating under the notion right. of As like such. groups or, or teams within a tenant, we already have that customer level isolation in there. So, you know, then, then the thought process turned to, okay, what do we have to do to achieve this? How do we do it? Do we introduce UUIDs or ULIDs or GUIDs? And I had this great idea of like, let's just use Snowflakes, which is a, a Twitter invention, which kind of it uses like a bit, but there's an unused bit in there, and then it's got like a timestamp portion and then a worker and a data center and then a sequence ID. And all of this combines into like a single 64-bit number that allows you to generate 5,000 records per worker per data center per millisecond, right? So you can see how this would scale up. Each instance of your application would have its own data center ID, ID, uh, data center identifier, worker identifier. And so the likelihood that you would ever have a collision of this randomly generated, but like deterministic ID would be very slim and so the thought process for us then was okay well we're going to use snowflakes because that way we don't have to change any application code to go and look at a different column and then generate uids for everything we would just rekey everything and because we've got foreign key constraints that cascade we could just like update the top level thing and then everything that's related would just cascade and get that new id And then the application would use Snowflakes for all of the new records that are created in the interim, knowing that we wouldn't have any collisions. And then once everything is using Snowflakes and has been rekeyed to use these Snowflakes, we could effectively, and this is like the simplistic answer, but there's there's a bit more involvement to it, is do a like insert into select from the database. And so we'll go from like the existing tenant databases, pick up all of the data and just like MySQL dump it effectively into the the new, you know, single tenant, and then everything would just work because everything is, you know, there's there's no expectation that there would be collisions between any of those keys and things like that. So uh, that's where we got until I know. <laughs> I got all of, I got all of the test passing. Everything is using Snowflakes now. I opened it up in the browser to do like a run through of our front end. And that's when we started to realize that JavaScript has this limitation of anything that is an integer, it kind of caps at 53 bits, which meant that it lost the oh. precision of the last 11 bits of that, that Snowflake oh, ID. So as the number got larger, JavaScript would helpfully just like round the end of it and lose those last 11 bits. So that's when we started having this discussion. It turns out that this is a problem uh, for Livewire. So uh, Chris morell, Ah. Who um, interesting. Yes. You're saying you're saying
1: with the, regarding like the JavaScript and this and the uh yeah. the ID numbers. Yeah, I actually have I have an interesting side on that. Once you're once you're done. Uh, the I had just messaged you a couple of minutes yeah. ago, live wire corrupt data. Issue. This is this is kind of right along with that. But go yeah, ahead. So
0: Josh Hanley actually had discovered this in Livewire recently, where if you pass it as an integer, it then gets munched as part of like Livewire's JavaScript handling of it in the same way. If you wrap it in quotes and it becomes a string, then it works works just fine. And so you can still store it ah, as an integer in the database, no problem. That you know, MySQL yeah, will sure. handle that. PHP handles the integer, no problem. It's just the translation between. You know, and into uh, into into JavaScript that it becomes problematic, where it kind of effectively just rounds the the snowflake to you know either up or down to the nearest hundred from from what we'd observed. So it turned out that there's there's ways of like so Chris Morell who works at Internachi, an, in um, and then he works with Daniel Coburn. Is like he's he's built like the snowflake aspect of the verbs package, which. Verbs uses for all of its event sourcing stuff, and then we've got uh, so I was talking to him, and uh, you know, he said, you know, we just came across this the other day, and so we're kind of talking about how do we solve this? Um, do we reduce the number of bits used in the in the sequence or the timestamp or what can we do to to munge it? And like this the simplest way of munging it for us is to just like go into our models and say, In our protected cast array, just go like ID is, you know, um, fat arrow string as opposed to integer. And then, of course, this has this cascading doom effect of everything that is typed for an integer is now going, I'm getting a string instead of an integer. And all of our JSON schema like contract tests are failing because they're getting strings instead of integers. And all of our snapshots are failing because there are strings and integers. So it's now. Don't you
1: only need it for liveware though? You only need it for well, live wire right?
0: It's but we don't we're not using live wire. I'm just saying it's it's also affecting live wire. This is everything that comes back from our API to the front oh, end and JavaScript, gosh, gotcha, sure. It's sure, being sure, used sure, by sure. JavaScript and JavaScript is is then you know munching that value. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, okay, that makes so sense. basically we have to yep, you know yep. refactor the whole back end to make sure, okay, everywhere that we were expecting an integer ID, we're now getting a string ID, which is still effectively an integer. Oh, but, so we're mess. gonna go and do that. We're gonna go update all the snapshots that are looking for the integer values and things like that. So it's it's a it's a whole thing, and it's it's the same issue I had, you know, two weeks ago, where I'm like running the 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 full test suite in parallel, getting to like thirty percent. Ah, there's a failure there. Fix that. Run it again. Wait for the first thirty percent. See that that passed. Okay, we got to thirty four percent. Doing that over and over again. So every time I kind of get asked, like, is this going to be ready to ship? I'm like, yeah, I, you know, I just got to iron out this thing, and then we'll ship it. And then, you know, as you pull away at the thread from this rug, it just gets worse and worse. So it's. We have a path forward. The front end, you know, we tested it having not, you know, run the full test suite. Like assuming that we will fix the test suite, ran, changed everything to use strings, ran it in the front end, the front end's happy. Like it's no longer chomping those those values and, and we're okay. So it's just a matter of going and addressing all of those those test issues now. So it's getting there. I think I'm uh the test suite is now up to forty forty two percent passing. So it's just a matter of dealing with it, and uh, and then we should be okay. So that'll that'll probably be the last thing I do this year because that's just taking up all my time. Gotcha.
1: Yeah. Um, I wanted to clarify one quick thing here. So snowflakes, um, they're basically a more unique form of a GUID or a UID. They, I mean, right? I mean, is there are ULED. I mean, essentially, because it seems like they can, they can be, you can generate more of them in a millisecond because there's more uniqueness in them. And the, which is why they're therefore called snowflakes, is because everyone is new, unique, yeah, is the idea. It's, it's,
0: I mean, it's a unique ID in the same way that a GUID is or a ULED is. they they were like, they were created by Twitter, you know, 10 years ago specifically for distributed computing. So they could have the same application deployed in different data centers right, around the world points, yeah. and they would all have their own identifiers and they could all generate, like you could have a tweet that is created at the exact same millisecond in two different data centers and you wouldn't get a collision on the ID. So you've got these distributed databases and things like that. So um, it's, but because yeah. it's an integer, it's lightweight as opposed to, you know, ULIDs and GUIDs and things like that where you, you know, to get them to be stored efficiently, you would typically store them as binary values rather than as strings and things like that. But yeah, so they, they are 64 bits of of data. They only use 63 bits. The first to actually... 41
1: are a timestamp, mm-hmm. which makes them sortable, which is nice. Yeah, yeah. so they're sortable
0: yeah. um, easily. They're indexable because they're, they're just numbers um, and things like that. So they're a good... And, and the reason that we kind of settled on the Snowflakes, I think I said, was so that we could like rekey everything without having to update all of our code to you know our back end and our front end to go okay i need to go and look at this GU80 column and and all that kind of stuff. So this was supposed to be a simple way which we're into like month 2 now <laughs> of uh, of doing it. So Jeez. We're getting yeah. there. It's just every time we think we're there something else crops up.
1: Yeah. Yeah, so i ran into a similar issue not not exactly similar but this whole idea of um javascript not handling integer or float or certain values the same way as php does um, causing some issues so specifically we were using livewire and i think most of us are probably educated on how this works but i want to just mention it in the case that that we aren't right so php um requests lifecycle like you don't like with livewire there's this idea that you know you're live updating and you are but sort of only, right? So when you are first interacting with this component, it's generating it on the server. It's getting the initial values. It's then dehydrating that object, right? Basically serializing that object, dehydrating it, passing it back over the wire to your front end and storing it locally. And then when you make a change, it. I, this is a simplified version of it, but when you make a change, right, it makes that request to the live wire endpoint along with that dehydrated object that was passed down and then it gets it back and rehydrates it. And, uh, that basically reconstitutes that object that was on the server side previously, um, applies any of the changes that it would apply and then it re dehydrates it. Right. And then sends it all back to you. Now, one of the problems you could have in that situation is because you're seeing that on the front end, it's possible that somebody could mess with it, right? They could modify the values that are in there. So if you had a user ID that was user ID five, and they know that the admin is user ID one, they can modify that value on the front end. And then when it sends it through, it's going to authenticate you and not as user five anymore, but as user one. Oh, oops, there we go. So now you can unlock a password, whatever you might have. So what it does to... um Solve that problem is that MD5 hashes it right before it sends it down, and then what it does is it checks it on its way back in to say has this been modified? And if it has been modified, you get this live wire corrupt data, which says, "Hey, you changed something on the front end from what I sent you. This is not okay. You need to. You can't do mm-hmm. that. We're not going to allow you to do that. Throw an error." So I've been getting this pro- this error not often, but on occasion, and I was like, "What is happening here? Why is this happening?" And so I ran across an issue in GitHub where it was saying. Basically, if there's these complex data structures that you're shipping down, sometimes LiveWire has a difficult time dealing with these. Uh, but in our specific case, what, it was ha- what was happening is that we were calculating some value. And for some reason, the value that was getting shipped down was negative 0.0. Okay, which odd. Mm-hmm. PHP sees that as a negative 0.0. No, no problem. JavaScript sees that and says, mm, that's not a thing. Mm-hmm. So it just changes it to zero. Now, 0.0 and 0 are equivalent. It doesn't throw a fit at all. It's the negative portion that really throws it for a loop. And so we had to... Protect against that because, in the case that that happens, it gets sent to the front end. The front end then accepts it and then sends it back. And when it sends it back, it's different than what it was the first time it got sent down. So it gives you that corrupted data problem. So we just eliminated that issue by saying, like, don't ever allow it to be negative 0.0, and that fixed the problem. No big deal. We actually restructured sort of the data format before I figured out what was going on. But we just eliminated the thing that was actually causing that because that was part of another issue. We're like, yeah, we're not really interested in that data anymore. So just eliminate it. So it solved the problem, which was great but it's interesting that it's, we literally ran into the same problem uh, not exactly the same but the fact that javascript you know can't handle those integer values mm. and so you know i didn't you know i'm curious how you found that out i mean i'm sure it started acting pretty funky pretty quick once you started yeah. using it yeah well it
0: values. was as soon as we opened the application right and we it creates a new application record it goes to like the first step sure. and then it's yeah. like saying that this person record by id blah doesn't exist and i'm looking at this id and i'm looking at all the previous response payloads i'm like where did this number come from you know yeah. it's not yeah, right. like it's not that it's
1: so you said how many bits of data does how many bits of data will javascript handle 53 50 something
0: you 53 said fifty-three bits yeah
1: 53 and this one is a 64 yeah. bit right
0: yeah. so yeah that's weird um and it, and it odd. wasn't until uh, my head of engineering sent this this screenshot which is the one that i tweeted Um, earlier today, which I'll put in the show notes, where he's like, let thing equal the number and then dump the number out. And you can see that it it just changes the value to to something else, close but not the same. And so, you know, that's what sent me on this tangent to complain about JavaScript to to Chris and Daniel. And then, you know, all of this stuff unfolding. So we figured out, you know, the way around it is just to, to use this... The, the integer as a string, and that's like good enough. Yeah, our use case. The the other alternative, but it has all these other cascading effects. Yeah. yeah. Um. The other alternative. So when you generate your snowflakes, you would set what's known as like an epoch to say like this is, this is the Unix epoch. Like this is the nineteen seventy oh one oh one of our snowflake, and that sure kind but of you get to set it right. Yeah. So you set that as part of the thing, and like once you set it, you don't change it. Um, we're not supposed to change it, but what it does is it introduce, introduces entropy between applications using the same Snowflake implementation. So if you and I created an sure. application both using Snowflakes, but we use you use your date of birth for your epoch and I use my date of birth for epoch, there should be very little chance that those, like that, the, both of those applications would ever generate the same um, IDs at the same time. Well, certainly not at the same time because yeah, right, they're sure. based. They've got a different Epoch anchoring them so um you know i chose a number a date that like of the the incorporation of the company is effectively and so that means that everything all of these numbers are then based on this date that's like eight years ago right so the numbers are quite large if we bring the epoch forward to like the first the earliest date in the database those numbers are still too big so what this tells me is that you know even numbers that are two years old you know that number's too big so this means that even if we were to use today's date as that epoch value at some point in the next two years it would all break again so it's better to kind of tackle it as a string now knowing that it's you know it's a string now it's going to be a string in two years it'll be a string in 10 years like you know we're trying to avoid having this this issue kind of appear on us because in two years time i'll have forgotten about it for sure
1: and are you, so like, you know, if I'm just being brutally pointed here, is Snowflake's actually something you really even need? I mean, like, did, wouldn't ULIDs, I mean, are you really, are you distributing this across multiple servers and multiple different, I mean, are you doing that? Like, is the Snowflake something that you have to have or what are you, ULID, UUID, you, you know, whatever, any of those implementations, would none of those work for you guys? Well, or are you just trying to future-proof it?
0: We're not, we're not using the Snowflake for the distributability of the generation of the identifiers. We're using it because it was supposed to be a one-to-one, like we're just using different integer values. And it meant that we could cascade those updates through the table. We wouldn't have to relink things. Everything would just be married I see. up. see. Right? That's
1: why you understand. I, okay, okay. I didn't understand what you were saying when you said that before. That mm-hmm. makes sense now. Yeah, I got so you.
0: instead of going from like yeah, yeah, yeah. an unsigned big integer to a string as our primary key, we don't have to yeah, we don't right. have to change our yeah. schema at all. It's still gonna be an unsigned big integer. It's just gonna have like a big integer in it. And so, you know, that was yeah, yeah. that was the the idea behind it. This would be easy. Integers are integers or integers and except when they're in JavaScript, apparently. Right. There is yeah. there, is the, ability, the yeah, there exactly. is the ability in JavaScript to use like a big number or something like that. Um, but that that is complicated on another level because that means we have to go and find all the instances of like where the integers are being used across the front end and that's probably right. a little bit yeah. trickier than just good luck converting though. everything to strings um so that's yeah that's where we landed so that's that's my um head hitting the wall that you can hear there so that's where i'm at gotcha
1: <laughs> i have one more unique challenge for you if you're ready for it Let's are do you ready it. we can do one more We've got we're 40 minutes in. I've got here's my unique challenge, okay? <clears throat> I want to only allow a user to have one instance of a particular page open at a time. Okay. So I have this dashboard. I'm not gonna get into the reasons for why. Maybe we can talk about it in another podcast. But if they open a window to this particular page mm-hmm. and then they open a duplicate tab to that same location. Right, and it's it's less so. Like they would have even probably different trailing URLs, right? So it, they they are both they end up both being the same Laravel view that is rendered. Mm-hmm. However, okay, but they might have different parameters in their URL path. If they open this page in a second tab, what I'd like to do is probably a inform them that they're only allowed to have one open. But two, probably, I think I would end up redirecting them to that page as quickly as possible, bouncing them off that page and then sending them to a page that says, hey, by the way, you already have a second, you already have a version of this open over here, you know, close this one or something like that. How would you approach... Now, I I have some ideas, uh, but how would you approach solving that problem?
0: I mean, one way you could do it is to obviously... If it's a an authenticated page, you can track the user, and then you can probably hash yeah the URL that they're like the current URL they're they're on, and then store okay. it in cache somewhere, and just say like if this thing already exists for this user, redirect them or send them to a like no you can't open this two times or like just to another page for example. That's
1: that's like awesome. how would that work? So like if they if they hit that page though and then refreshed the page, like does the cache live? Like, how do you make oh, it yeah. only live for as long as that session is, that page is open? You know what I mean? Is the question for me. Like, because if they, if they hit that page and then they, they get on that page and relatively quickly afterwards, they refresh the page mm-hmm. because they, you know, realize they changed something over here that affects the database. And so they, they refresh the page or the, re- or the, the refresh is triggered to happen. Right. How do I ensure that they can still get to that page? Like, how does it know that this isn't oh this isn't another version it's just the same instance that you had open before.
0: I mean, so there's possibly a couple of ways of doing it. Um, you could you could send back some ping that like a keep alive with some identifier for like that specific page. Like just generate a random string and say okay this is this is the thing. So if it's this thing, yeah, hitting the same. So you would, you would need to make sure that like if you open a new tab it is generating a new identifier um possibly track like sure and uh-huh. you can you can do like navigate away like there's a way to you know you go to those pages and you try and navigate yeah, it's, away up, and it's like, before hey. unload yeah
1: it's before unload yeah that's that's exactly yeah you're hitting on sort of the thought process that i had which is to me it seems like it's got to be a front-end thing mm-hmm. It's got to be a front-end solution the front-end knows about the front-end um, and so I, I've been seeing, so like I saw Wes boss do this a little bit ago where he did this, you know, if you've seen these multi window sort of experiments on Twitter mm-hmm. where like somebody will have like four different browser windows open all to the same site and it can draw like an SVG between the different windows mm-hmm. or you can see like your face in different places. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like you can stream the webcam to each one of the windows and you can sort of like tile the windows and they can show different parts of your webcam, whatever. Mm-hmm. So I, I was watching that and I was like, okay, interesting. This is sort of this multi-window problem that he's solving there. And what he said, which was interesting, is that he said, how do, how are you accomplishing this? How are you sort of syncing the information between the windows? He's like, you could do like WebSockets or something like that. He said, but local storage is shared between all of the windows on the same page, which was like, oh, really? That's really interesting. It's It's immediate too. Mm-hmm. So if I set local storage on one window... And then I I see, you know, I have that same window open on the other side over there. They share that local storage variable, that that data. And so you can immediately get to one from the other, uh, whatever that value is that you set. So the thought process I was having was, yes, you'd basically generate a unique ID for that window. And then what you would do is, yeah, like every, I don't know. Every second or something, you'd update that thing with like a timestamp whatever. Like, Hey, this is the last time I checked it. Still, I'm still here. And then on unload on window unload, you would remove that key from local storage. Like Before unload, you'd, you know, forget item or remove item. And then what you would do is whenever you're opening up a window before you set that unique ID, you would look to see if local storage already has that ID. And if it does, then you would just bounce them. I think is the idea yeah i haven't messed with it yet but that's i think the path that i'm going down so the three key pieces here are a unique identifier b updating the timestamp to be a period of seconds and the only reason why you think so okay let's take that away for a second if, if you don't do that um as long as you can reliably say that the person is going to have a window on unload event then you don't have to do a timestamp at all. You could just say, leave it in there, and then when they leave the page, then you can remove that value from the session. But if for some reason that stale value gets left behind, you'd want a way to sort of have like a dead man switch where you could say, if it's older than 10 seconds, you just want to forget it. It's it's not relevant anymore. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Whatever window was doing it is died more than 10 seconds ago and hasn't had a chance to update it. So it's no longer relevant, so I think I would probably do that dead man switch there, but then the third thing again is, yeah, you would check uh, when you get to the page, is that value already set in local storage, and if it is, and it's less than ten seconds old, then bounce to a redirected page and say you can't you can't look at this on this window, you have to close it or you have to go back to your other window. I think all of that would work, I think uh again, I haven't experimented with it too much yet, but that's my that's my thought process on it, so.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think something in that realm is probably what you're going to want to do to to achieve what you're trying to do.
1: Yeah. Yeah. There's a couple other caveats too. So like in the case that, I don't know, like, I, I think, I think I would want that working like that. Like if it's like in the background for some reason, that's one other thing. Like if it's in the background in a different tab in a background tab or something, and it's buried, And you don't know where it's at. And then you open a new tab and it's like, nope, you can't do that. That would be really annoying to me. (laughs) Yeah. That'd be super annoying. It's like, I have to go find that. Where is that stupid tab? So like, there are some weird things like that where I'm like, is there a way to like open up that tab or can I close the other one or, you know what I mean? Can I, can I bounce the other one or something? I'm not sure. I, I, those are some of the weird things I'm working through as well. Um, and maybe the reason I'm doing it is a bad reason, but basically what we want to do is we want to be able to, it sounds so like, uh, hmm, rudimentary or like, like bad practice. Mm -hmm. What we're doing is we're just tracking active time and dead time for people who are on the page, right? We want to know how long they're active on the page for. And if you allow them to open more than one window, you double that time up sort of deal. It's for internal use only. It's for our employees. So it's like, it's, I can see doing it in a way that I think would make sense, um, but that's why we're doing it. And I, I, if I could solve the problem a different way, as far as like if I could make sure that I'm not tracking time for multiple browser sessions open at the same time, then I could then I could solve it without any having to use any of this, which would be the way I'd prefer to solve it. But I had, I haven't come up with a better solution yet. So this is my first stab at it, and it's like don't allow more than one browser session. So yeah, we'll see, we'll see how it goes. Yeah, cool. I think that's it. I'll do a little I'll do a little experiment. I think I think that's it. I think that's it, my friend well hey folks today we learned about snowflakes we learned about javascript and php handling items differently live wire corrupt data we learned the lumberjack song talked about single instances of browser sessions all sorts of good stuff hopefully you enjoyed the show this was episode 147 find show notes at northmeetsouth.audio slash 147 hit us up on pod on, on podcast hit us up on twitter at michael dorinda at jacob bennett if you have any questions and uh rate us a big Podcatcher's choice five stars would be amazing Till next time folks We'll see you later. Thanks so much. Bye-bye.